Greetings, I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's interview is with Malcolm Woolen, and his book is Eric Gunner Asplund, Landscapes and Buildings, published by Routledge in 2019. Hi, Malcolm. Welcome to the show. Thank, thank you, Tricia. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, let's start. Could you tell the audience about yourself and your educational background? Well, I am an architect, um, and I, um, but I studied liberal arts and French uh, at, um, at Middlebury College and, and then have a, an MARC in architecture. But um, soon after architecture school, I became interested in, uh, in landscapes. And, um, and it was primarily through uh, visiting the uh, prehistoric Indian mounds in Ohio uh, that a lot of people don't know about that, that I began to see that... that um, Architecture really begins as a um, almost a reconciliation of geometry and landscape, and um, I uh, as well as animal forms too. In the case of many of the Ohio mounds, and um, so that was really a beginning point for me. And I have taught architecture for for many years, and. Um, one of my particular points of emphasis or obsessions is trying to uh, get architecture students to take an interest in in site planning and basically the power of landscape and relating their buildings successfully to uh, to landscapes. And um, I um, that was really the entree into the book on Asplund that I saw that um, Asplund was one of the few architects uh, in modern history who um, really gave, almost gave priority to landscape. And uh, you can follow a trajectory in his work, um, seeing how landscape um, assumed an even greater role as as time went on, and to the point where landscape, the primary idea, lies in landscape, and buildings um, are intended to have a dialogue with that primary idea and uh, really defer to that primary idea. And um, the book is unusual in that. Um, it is not the usual uh, history uh, of of these particular projects that I emphasize. That I I really tried to well first actively interpret uh, the the particular sites and put them in cultural context, and I also made an attempt to distill principles from these projects that would be accessible to both architects and landscape architects. In other words, I wanted to make um, the projects relevant again to to practitioners uh, today. So in effect, I wanted to be that bridge between the projects as they exist and the um, professional community. Um, so what was your motivation for writing this book? What was your interest in uh, doing this research and presenting it? Um, well, I, I thought that that these particular projects had not been properly interpreted by, um, by art historians uh, up to this point. And I, I could see that there were uh, shall we say, um, readings or messages or intentions on the part of Asplund, which had not been properly explained 
in any of the literature. And, um, and I, I, so that is one motivation on, on one hand. And another motivation is that, uh, in this era of, of, um, should we say climate uncertainty and, um, uh, undermining, um, the, the, the basic, uh, um, assumptions that we take about um, nature and climate that that um, landscape landscape um, has the potential to assume even greater importance uh, as a an expressive tool for for both landscape architects and architects and I had the sense that that um, Asplund demonstrated how um, some basic kind of principles and methods um, uh, to to approach um, uh, this this particular question, and it's a quite a um, kind of complex and and complicated question, but but um, it it hadn't been um, Properly treated both in historical um, uh, writing as well as theoretical writing. Um, well, I haven't heard of him previously to this book. Can you uh, can you tell me more about him? Um, my background's in landscape architecture, uh, so that well, so the audience gets familiar. Who is who is he? What is he about? Well, he he was a, a Swedish architect who. Um, uh, was uh, born in, um, I think, the late 1880s and became active in um, around the time of um, World War One, And um, um, his, um, his, really his, his largest uh, first commission that lasted for the rest of his life was the the Woodland Cemetery. Uh, and he won this commission with Sigurd Leverance. And it, it dates from um, 1915. And it was to replan um, or propose a plan for a large cemetery to the south of, of Stockholm, uh, where there was um, an existing forest. And um, uh, Asplund and Leverance proposed a plan where uh, there would be graves in the forest. And um, this touched upon all kinds of, um, um, uh, should we say, Swedish cultural practices, uh, Swedish folklore since... um, the forest uh, assumes enormous meaning, meaning in um, in Swedish literature and and, and Swedish uh, religion, and um, uh, so um, and this particular scheme was, uh, should we say, part and parcel with the um, with the prevailing kind of artistic era in which it was done, which is called. National Romanticism, which is also identified with a school of painting, and it's kind of at the tail end of what one might call the National Romantic period when Swedish artists came back from 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 France and um, um, rediscovered both Swedish landscape and Swedish uh, cultural traditions. Um, so. Uh, there has been. Uh, this is something that I I did my best to capture in the book was the the history of um, both the Swedish attachment to landscape, how it's been portrayed in in painting as well, and how it um, was integrated both into national romanticism, um, neoclassicism. 
and in the 20th century, what is called functionalism uh, in 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 Sweden, which which we would interpret it interpret as as modernism. So, in I mean, your research, yeah, this first one, the Woodland Cemetery. What did you? Uh, discover in this book that hadn't been uh, talked about before uh, that would be relevant um, and for, for, for U.S. practitioners and for students? Well, I'm, I, in the Woodland Cemetery uh, in particular, um, I, um, one, um, I, I did my best to Kind of elucidate and explain a number of um, uh, um, kind of principles, but Asplund and Leverance um, collaborated on several projects at the Woodland Cemetery, and some of them did um, projects by themselves. And um, the first project that Asplund did by himself was called the Woodland Chapel, and it is a a very um, small building that uh, that is set uh, in the forest, and um, the forest though is framed by a walled enclosure, which is something like a a church churchyard. So right away in the landscape itself. Um, Asplund is making a a dual reference, ambiguous reference. It's both the Christian churchyard and the sacred grove kind of encompassed in one thing. And so with that duality comes ambiguity. You could see it in two different ways. And you you walk through a gateway of the wall into this into this uh, forest that's framed by the wall. And, and then you look through the trees and you see this hut at the end of, the tr- end, end of um, uh, uh, this walkway through the forest. And the hut has, um, I, believe, I believe it's nine, nine or maybe 12, 12 columns. And um, the um, on the roof of the hut, which has uh, cedar shingles, um, it's a very very steep steep roof. There's a little angel um, figure, um, which which um, is uh, is ac- actually a kind of a covered with gold leaf. But the angel, uh, it's called the angel of death, but it's actually a fat angel, and the the, the wings look as if uh, they've been kind of strapped on. So it's simultaneously an angel and a, what one might call a Neolithic earth goddess. So again, it's the, uh, it's the kind of Christian iconography is, is, um, is overlaid with, with um, pre-Christian, pre-Christian icons. And as you, as you um, circulate through um, a forest of columns, you come into the chapel, and inside there is a a perfect kind of plaster dome, something like a kind of miniature pantheon. And so, in effect, he's done the same thing again uh, with the, with the building itself, where. You have the kind of pre-Christian architecture of the Viking hut, and inside is a reduced version of of um, um, of you might call it a miniature pantheon with an oculus oculus lighting at the top. So it's a perfect example where an architect has used both the site sculpture and a. Uh, uh, the building itself to um, send a kind of complex, composite, and ambiguous, ambiguous message to to the population, which perfectly captures the 
um, Swedish sensibility since they really uh, considered themselves both Christians and and pagans kind of simul- simultaneously. So um, you can see how um, this particular work uh, speaks so forcefully to uh, to them and to and to those coming to this chapel because they immediately have this um, vision through time uh, to to the um, earliest earliest period. Um, should I go on about the uh, one of the, the next uh, important stage of the of the Woodland Cemetery as as well? Yes. Um, the, so this was done in about 1924, and um, the next uh, stage, which is the north entry, um, took a long time to develop, and Leverance and Asplund did it uh, collectively, and um, they were working with a, a committee in appointed by the cemetery commission which oversaw their work um but the the main idea was that they needed a large open space to to effectively contrast with with the forest and um um so in effect they departed from their plan from 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 1915, and um, Asplund and, and Leverance came up with this um, idea to make to create this oceanic space with a, a, um, a r- rather large mound with a grove on 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 top of it uh, called the Meditation Grove, and. Um, it um, um, it, and the uh, so unlike other kind of cemetery complexes and their earlier neo- neoclassical schemes, there was no building at the end of an axis that one might that one might expect. The 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 axis or walkway was off to one side, and the axis uh, just goes into the into the forest. So, um, so this was, this was the, um, the landscape becomes the essential idea and, um, the architects committed themselves to, uh, in a sense, constructing this, this landscaped sequence, um, for people preparing, uh, to, to go to the memorial service, uh, for the, for the departed person, and they even composed two adjacent routes, one more public than than the than the other, uh, which go up the hill at the, at the Woodland Cemetery, and um, um, and there are various episodes along this route, but but you're able to you're able to see the meditation grove. Um, uh, up on up on your right, and um, so there's the whole memory of this of this uh, open landscape um, as you approach the top of the hill, and the the crematorium is off on your left, which is organized as a sequence of tra- of chapels, um, the last of which is Chapel of the Holy Cross. That's behind this this large, um, um, what's called the Monument Hall, which 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 is a large um, um, uh, s- struck structure, almost a big porch in in front of Chapel of the Holy Cross, and um, um, I'm I'm um, going on at some length, but there's also uh, as you after you arrive at at the monument hall, you're able to kind of look back and experience the meditation grove in a new way. And um, 
there's an outdoor service area that's exactly on axis between the monument hall um, and and the med- and the meditation grove. Um, so he um, he in a sense reinforces that diagonal relationship between the monument hall and the meditation grove. Um, so I I think there I. I could go on at even greater length, but but I think there are innumerable uh, valuable lessons about constructing this sequence as a preparatory experience, and then the whole sequence acts as kind of a postlude. It's both prelude and postlude after the service, as you as you leave the service, and um, you, in a sense. Um, uh, have the same you, you 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 can revisit the same landscape though with with a completely different feeling and and sensibility. Well, I wanted to ask you something you said earlier, and then we'll go and then I want to go to another case study too. Um, you said about a Swedish uh, society and their mythology and religion with the forest, um, and how does that um, influence his designs? Um, I'm not familiar. Uh, with their uh, culture on that level? There was a, a growing landscape tradition uh, in the early 20th century where, um, um, where they, they really wanted to um, uh, preserve rugged parts of the landscape that existed around Stockholm. And um, I... Um, these are sometimes outcrops. Uh, there used to be almost these these long glacial ridges in Stockholm that had been um, they were they were really full of gravel and they had been uh, eroded over time. And uh, but one of the one of the remaining ones um, happened to be on the site which was purchased by the Public Library Commission. And um, they, um, Asplund Council Buildings, um, uh, they're subservient to the building. That is to say that there's a main axis that, that, um, that organizes the park, that, that uh, focuses on the building. Um, you can see this at Bryant Park in New York, for example, and and um, innumerable. You see it in Indianapolis uh, uh, at, with the with the downtown public library, and in this case, the um, the library does not dominate the park. There is no axial arrangement um, be, be, between the two. The park. Um, has its own integrity. He was very mindful how the the library would be seen from the adjacent reflecting pool and 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 the park. But it's he he organized a really oblique view of of the building from from the park, uh, not an axial one. So it gives the it gives Observatory Lunden and the um, reflecting pool area its own sense of autonomy and, and integrity. Uh, not that there aren't interrelationships between the building and the park, um, but the park can really um, be understood as its own thing. And um, I make the case the that... Um, the building has a sequence where uh, you go up a long ramp on the outside at the at the front facade of the building, cutting through this kind of plinth, and um, then you enter, then you enter a lobby, and then you enter um, another kind of steep staircase that takes you up. Um, basically into a floor of this large uh, cylindrical uh, room that, that has a panoramic view of, of, um, of bookcases. And, and 
And in an analogous way, the sequence up to the top of Observatory Cullen adjacent is this kind of switchback where um, pathway where Asplund gives some kind of precise and calculated views of certain landmarks of Stockholm, um, certain churches in particular, as you go up to the top. And then the uh, then this gigantic panoramic view of Stockholm is revealed when you arrive at the top, and there's kind of a vaguely defined axial view back down to the beginning point, to the reflecting pool, once, once you arrive at the top. So I think that Asplund is trying to get people to, in a sense, make comparisons between the architectural experience and the landscape experience. Oh, that sounds fascinating. And uh, it seems like that, you know, your approach or his approach is uh, uh, start with the landscape architecture and then build it up into architecture. Yes, but but often um, there isn't a successful collaborative relationship between architects and landscape architects and um so they don't realize the the this potential uh of this collaboration for for buildings and landscapes to um to in effect have a have a dialogue uh with 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 each other so um it does not happen very often <laughs> and, and so this is a this is a rare case which which um, uh, made me want to uh, present it and and explain it. Uh, can you tell me what's one of the, your? Uh, why don't we talk about a lot of different aspects? Is there a favorite uh, project of his that you would like to uh, let our audience know about? Oh, I I like all of them so much. Um, the um, the. I, I guess the one that's most kind of intimate and um, um, is his own house, and um, where um, he was able to, uh, in a sense, reenact many of the same concepts that he had done in earlier large projects, but on a kind of tiny scale. Um, his um his house is is a um it's set next to an inlet uh at the end of an inlet um in the Stockholm archipelago just south of Stockholm and um there are these huge art uh, very t- uh, steep outcrops around the rear of the house and um the the house is is um uh the plan of the house is gently terraced and culminates in this uh living room which kind of uh skews slightly to receive the view of the inlet and there is a um there is both a kind of uh, a courtyard and um it's it's both kind of pleasure courtyard, uh, farmyard, and meadow. Those three images are kind of overlaid with each other in the approach to the house. And he also, like the Stads Bibliotheque, has a um, a climb immediately in back of the house up to the top of the outcrop, where you get this panoramic view of both the landscape. And the house, and you can experience the house in the context of the wider landscape, which is immediately analogous to uh, to the experience at the Stads Bibliotheque. And um, it's all the same things, um, many of the same same things, but but um, deployed at a uh, an intimate. Uh, residential scale and in the context of um, an open landscape rather rather than a city but but um, it's it's doing the same thing um, 
the all of his projects, the Woodland Cemetery, um, the Stockholm Exhibition, um, uh, Stenos, the, his house that I just mentioned, they all have these high points that um, allow the um, allow you to kind of experience experience the whole site. At in the case of the um, Stockholm exhibition, uh, that high point is this kind of press gallery that's that's part of this gigantic advertising mast, uh, which which is um, in the middle of what what's called a fest fest plots. Um, but I digress. Oh no, that's okay. Well, I know this is I probably should have asked this question first. But what were his um his early influences, why did he care about landscape? Um, and where did he go to school and uh, learn more about, uh, or, or his influences for these two major projects? That's an interesting question. He, um, he began uh, learning um, to be an architect in the early 20th century when Neoclassicism was becoming um, uh, was the prevailing thing, and um, he he went to something called the Clara School, which um, was a almost a kind of secessionist school. It's where a group of of um, of architecture students formed seceded from the more established school and formed their own school. And part of, of being um, a Swedish architect at that time um, was to make a grand tour of uh, main, uh, most frequently uh, Italy. Sometimes it included uh, Greece as well. And um, Asplund, um, uh, after he, he, he graduated from um, the uh, school, Asplund um, did, this, did this tour. And uh, he was most struck by um, sites um, uh, in Sicily with, with Greek temples. And um, he talked about, um, oh, the sequence walking up in his journals he talks about the sequence rising up to 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 the temple and the um and the majestic view that he saw from 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 there you could see boats out in the um out in the bay and that he he describes acutely the the um the blossoms of the fruit trees and the aromas and it was both a kind of simultaneous experience of, um, should we should we say, antiquity or uh, eternity, uh, since this is um, this was an experience, um, in a sense, uh, designed by architects uh, millennia ago, but at the same time he was having an everyday central experience of boats and um and and fruit blossoms at the same time so um he talks about this in a very emotional way and um i couldn't help but 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 think that that um uh these these experiences with greek temples um and italian uh other italian hill towns um were fundamental in his in his formation and in his um, in his will to to unify central experience um, uh, landscape and uh, a sense of of time and eternity all at once. And he was not alone in this. There were other neoclassic architects uh, who did this as well, and. Um, one of his um, contemporaries named Ivar Ten- Tenbaum um, visited Suggesta 
which is a Greek theater on the edge of the sea. And um, he had Suggesta in mind when he uh, designed the uh, Stockholm uh, Concert House. And um, it was a poetic vision of, of um, being in that outdoor theater um, was his impetus for designing the, the Stockholm Concert House. But at the same time, he wanted uh, a market and shops integrated with the concert house. So he both wanted this, this um, shall we say, kind of a cosmic view of an antiquity and also this sense of, of everyday integration. And um, Asplund at the public library also wanted shops integrated into the um, uh, the plinth of his building, and he also um, uh, integrated a, an outdoor market, which is in the back of the library, which still exists uh, to the, to this day. So, um, another um, an, another example of of um, of of this is um, is uh, a a movie theater, uh, one of the early movie theaters that Aspen designed, and he used the the design of the movie theater to to evoke the experience of being uh, in an Italian town at nighttime, and you're able to kind of uh, see the stars. He put these little tiny light fixtures in the in the vaulted dome of of, of the movie theater, and um, so there. There's another example of how important uh, these these early experiences uh, in Italy were were to him. So he's really um, it's well a lot of his interviews kind of go like this. Uh, he's also urban design uh, just goes hand in hand with, of course, landscape and uh, and buildings. At the at the Stockholm exhibition. Um, uh, this was this was done um, on the on the uh, to the uh, to the east of of the main part of the city where there had been uh, an earlier ex- exhibition and um, he it was uh, a site along the edge of of a of a of a lagoon and there was. Um, an existing an existing forest there, and um, he um, he really treated um, uh, the the main the main plaza surrounded by the forest. He used the the build the ranges of buildings to surround this main plaza, and um, which also bordered on the the lagoon. As the main gesture, and the the public performances in the plaza um, were were really the big events, and the um, the press box and the advertising mast, um, which was um, kind of overlooked the plaza, and the advertising mast was was meant to evoke what's called the Maestung, which is this this um the swedish version of the maypole uh which usually had um uh these symbols at the top of it and he he reinterpreted uh the kind of archaic symbols as a, as an advertising mast which is all very kind of ironic in itself but but what i wanted to get to is that many of the buildings um um, the transportation building in particular uh, put boats and airplanes kind of presented in front of the buildings and he he made a garden called uh, the Alnarp garden immediately opposite the transportation buildings the transportation buildings so um, in effect you're you're both experiencing these boats, beautiful boats and aircraft at the same time 
that you're experiencing this beautiful uh, perennial garden. And I can't help but think that, that he wanted people to understand um, modernism and these new kind of icons of modernity in the context of landscape. And that in effect, it's, it's, uh, you could see it as a, almost a political gesture. It's, it's reassuring that um, my flowers that, that uh, occur in my backyard, uh, I am seeing kind of beautiful modern boats and airplanes at the same time. I'm smelling and experiencing uh, flowers that would occur in my backyard. So he's he's uh, mixing kind of familiar Swedish um, domesticity with with these uh, iconic things. And the whole point of the of the Stockholm exhibition was to promote modern housing, uh, which was one of the uh, the big uh, agendas of the social democrats who were just coming to power at that this time, and um, they they used the construction of new modern housing to um, to to really stimulate the economy and to um, to care for the new um, population that had just. Um, uh, come in from the declining countryside to seek jobs in, in the city. And you can see how many of the new um, housing projects, um, many of them are, are planned um, around uh, these, um, or you might, you might call them again, these, these uh, natural artifacts, be they forests, or, or ponds, and that uh, to some extent they uh, they attempt to kind of mimic the pattern of the Stockholm exhibition in in honoring um, the the essential landscape feature as the as the major public gathering point and the the major amenity uh, as as well. Oh, wow. Well, you know, um, we studied this a little bit um, in class, but I really appreciate how in your book, for since this is a, a, a listening medium uh, for our audience, uh, you put, you know, maps and you really went into a lot of depth and detail, especially into the Woodland Lawn um, case study. I think that would be interesting for, for all disciplines, urban architect, landscape architect, um, because you really show in, in pictures and stuff and, and more in depth about uh, about this project and who, what, when, why of of the details. Obviously, some of the some of the maps and images could could be could be larger, but but uh, be that as it may, that was that 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 was the intention. And the the other the other part of it is at the conclusion. Um, I attempt to review the the basic concepts that that uh, Asplund demonstrated throughout all the projects that that I listed and concepts that are directly related to uh, both landscapes uh, landscapes and buildings or drawing relationships uh, between landscapes and buildings and it it's difficult because many of the concepts overlap each other. Some of them are variations on each other, but it's the best I could do to uh, to kind of be clear and, and explain um, the many kind of techniques that, that he he demonstrated um, uh, throughout throughout all the projects. I talk about you know, inside and outside frame landscapes, uh, parallel sequences that we talked about at the at the um, Stads, Stads Bibliothèque, um, the importance of diagonal views, how they're non-hierarchical and they kind of gather can gather a number of things uh, into relationship, um, the importance of the high point where you can 
re-experience where you've been uh, uh, in a whole new way. Asplund frequently um, did what I call um, art of arrival. Um, sometimes it's a sculpture. Sometimes it's a huge, huge airplane or a sailboat. Sometimes it's it's the um, the angel of death on top of the um, of, of the woodland chapel, but it's it's a kind of reduced artifact or relationship that that is kind of cueing you in about what 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 you're about to 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 experience, and that that by itself is a, is another method method or technique. And so that is again, um, just to return to my earlier point, why this book is somewhat different than what an art historian um, would do in that I'm trying to articulate um, um, methods and concepts that that could be uh, adapted and um, and and used one of the essential ones is has just has to do with ambiguity and um how you can use um should we say two cultural um kind of constructs or interpretations at the same time to get um kind of alternating uh, viewpoints, so you in effect allow um, either a vision through time, or you allow the person experiencing something to to actually kind of see something uh, the way they want to see it. For example, at the Woodland Cemetery, uh, at the north entry and that big wide open space that we talked about, there is both the large mound which obviously refers back to um, the, the um, uh, amount where kind of Gustav, Gustav III is buried at Drottningholm, as well as burial mounds of uh, Neolithic and, and Viking burial mounds, which are all over Sweden. So you, you have the choice of seeing the place in a Christian way, the cross, which is along along the route or you can see it you can you can uh if you're not so christian you could see you can experience the the mound as the primary experience or you could experience them both at the same time and see a pathway of belief in swedish history so there's this multiplicity all too often in in my architectural education and perhaps in landscape architectural education, students are um, drilled to have a clear diagram and, and, a, and a single readable intention. And Asplund is really a, um, sp- well, is playing a different tune. He's, he's uh, in effect advocating the, the richness of um, multiple experiences, but they're multiple experiences that are planned deliberately. They're not. They're not uh, a matter of a an ill-considered or sloppy design. It's a matter of of setting up possibilities with with real deliberation. And I think there's there's a difference between those two things. What are you working on now? Well, I I, I um. I had a Fulbright grant to go to France uh, between January and July to do research on a landscape architect named Michel Corjou. And um, he was an important practitioner and pedagogue in France. And he only died about four years ago. But he was... Um, very instrumental in kind of reestablishing the uh, the identity of of the education 
or, or the nature of the, of the education of landscape architects and the identity of the profession in, in France in the early uh, 1970s. And his idea of the curriculum became the prevailing one uh, through, throughout Europe. And, and he also did a sequence of very important influential projects um, Jardin du Saucé, uh, Jardin d'Eole, uh, Parc de Gerlande in Lyon, and Les Quais de Bordeaux, obviously in, in, in Bordeaux. And I am I'm going to be composing a book about Michel Corriger, and there's currently uh, no book in English on his major projects. And you like Asplund, was very expert in practicing this art of ambiguity, um, in a sense, presenting a, a composite image, uh, which could be one thing uh, contained in another that, um, in a sense, um, allows the viewer to um, you know, actively participate in, um, in interpreting what what he or she sees. And uh, so I look forward in a few years to possibly talking to you again. <laughs> so we, we should, we, if I'm lucky, we, sh- we, sh- we shall see. Oh, yes. Well, of, of course. I was about to say, well, uh, you're going to have to uh, yeah, contact me again and uh, send us a book to uh, interview about uh, another landscape architect. If I if I'm so lucky, and I'm I'm, oh, yeah. I'm I'm hanging out with so many landscape architects that that um, I'm 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 um, it's it's come to the point where I can only speak comfortably with with landscape architects, and I end up uh, talking to architects exclusively about landscape projects. So <laughs> I'm, be- I'm becoming quite tiresome. Yay! Well, you're becoming the bridge between the two. Yes, and that's that uh, returns to the uh, the major intention to to introduce architects to the power of landscape, and and perhaps to some extent uh, introduce landscape architects to um, some of some of the intentions behind architecture, but primarily uh, the former rather than the latter. Well, thank you so much again for being here today. And that's the perfect note to end it on. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to, to do this. Have a nice evening. Thank you, Tricia. Take care. Again, I want to thank you for listening today. The book is Eric Gunner Asplund. Landscapes and Buildings, written by Malcolm Woolen, published by Routledge in 2019. And I'm Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.